The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everyone. Happy Monday. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate here on the Voice American Network. On today's show, I'm happy to report that I will be co-hosting with Jason Meister, who is here in the studio with me. First of all, congratulations to Jason. He's a new dad. That happened late last week, so congratulations. Thank you, Vince. Thank you so much for being here. Jason works in commercial real estate. He was here once before talking about his career and his background. He's a broker and vice president at Avison Young. He works in their capital markets group. Uh, we have a special guest this morning. Uh, his name is Steve Whitkoff. He's the CEO of the Whitkoff Group and a real estate investment firm that owns a diverse portfolio of real estate in select U.S. markets. The company specializes in identifying and acquiring undervalued properties in key central business district locations as well as assets with strong repositioning potential in newly emerging markets. The Whitkoff Group's growing portfolio includes office and industrial properties, residential buildings, and also land and hotel developments. We're also going to talk to my panel of real estate agents later in the program as they comment on hot topics of the week, so we'll get to that later on. First of all, good morning, Steve, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Vince. How, hi, Jason. How are you? Good, Steve. How are you? We're good, pretty good. So we, we wanted to talk to you a little bit this morning about what I like to call you know, our progression from you know, our early days in our career to where we are today. And I know in some research that I was doing that you were born... Uh, in the Bronx, raised on Long Island, you earned your mm-hmm. law degree from Hofstra University. Why aren't you practicing law today? Gosh, <laughs> that's a good question, Vince. But I think really the reason is is that I was lucky enough to have gotten a job out of law school at Dreyer and Traub, which you know you, I think you've got to be my age to remember who this firm was, but it was the the leading boutique real estate firm back then. And they represented Peter Calico and Donald Trump and Integrated Resources and Cadillac Fairview, which was the Bronfman family. And it was hard to practice law and represent that assortment of people and not want to go try and do it yourself. And, and, and that's really the best reason I could give um, for, for not practicing law today. By the way, what when you were, when you were studying uh, law, what was your specialty or what did you think your specialty was going to be? You know, I, I, I mean, I always liked business. Um, interestingly enough, I had a girlfriend in those days who, um, who I had gone to school with and uh, law school with, and she was a graduate of Wesleyan University. And so she just believed in, um, and, and I do too, by the way, she just believed in um, the give back. She had worked for the Criminal Appeals Division of the, uh, of the Legal Aid Society and then the Prisoner's Rights Project. And so we both used to talk all the time about 
trying to help people who were less fortunate, indigent defendants, but I couldn't figure out a way to pay the rent and do that. And so I'm not sure other than that, I had a real clear focus on what I wanted to do. And then I got lucky and I got to dry iron trial, and it was very, very clear to me that I loved real estate. That said, back then, Vince, other than not like today, because it was completely different, you know, there seemed to be a lot of barriers to getting into business or being in the real estate business, certainly from for someone like myself. And so I'm not sure that I ever um, had these grandiose expectations that I could do anything I wanted to do. I did read about your, your earlier uh, beginnings um, at, uh, at your first real estate firm, uh, and it sounded very interesting, especially the Donald Trump connection. But let me ask you, so after the collapse of the real estate market in 1998, rather, you and your then partner split, and you took office buildings, and he took residential buildings. What was that about, or how did you come to that decision? Because obviously, as we go through this this talk to this morning, you've you've increased your residential portfolio and are doing exceptionally well. But interesting back then, was there thinking that you wanted to say just in commercial, just in office? No, no. Larry and I, the name of the company was Stellar Management, and and it stood for Steve and Larry, and. We just, you know, we had had a bunch of years together. We're still, we're still friends to this day. So it, there was nothing acrimonious about it. I just think that there was this feeling that we, we each had different directions we wanted to go in. And cutting the company up like that was, honestly, I, I don't want to, it wasn't a coin flip. But I said to Larry, you know, what are you comfortable with? And he really liked the multifamily much more. And I, and I was very good with the, with the office. And that's how it happened. It, it wasn't any more complicated than that. Okay. You found you went on to found the, the Whitcarf Group, obviously, and eventually expanded back into residential properties. And by 2013, you owned about 30 properties in the U.S. and London. What properties um, do you consider your crown jewels? Well, um, you know, I, I, I think from back then, historically, or, or yeah, today? Yeah, yeah, historically. I mean, historically, I think that the Daily News building was really a seminal property for us. That was um, uh, that was a million square foot office building on Forty Second Street, One Fifty Charles. That land was really a big buy for us because we knew that it was going to have it was going to be a significant residential development. And of course, we've sold it in we sold it in twelve and a half weeks at some you know blockbuster prices. And so that was a signature property for us. The Woolworth building had enormous historical um, significance to us, and the Shellmex house in London, um, as well as Devonshire in London. So, I, I mean, I was, I look back sometimes, I pinched myself, because we really were on some very, very fascinating real estate transactions. You certainly are, and at the end of last year, you, you purchased the Helmsley Park Lane Hotel for roughly $660 million. Mm-hmm. What are your plans for that property? I know, million-dollar question. <laughs> what do you plan to do with that? <laughs> Yeah, you know, we it, it, today it is an operating hotel, and Vince, we we say all the time that we never failed to do well on properties that had multiple exit strategies, and so that property is a is an unencumbered. When I say unencumbered, unencumbered with a management contract. It's an and and it doesn't have a flag attached to it. A a hotel brand with a with a long term contract. So today. Um, it is a an operating hotel, Highgate, and we regard Highgate as probably the best manager out there in the hotel space. 
Highgate is managing it and is a partner of ours on it. And we've increased cash flow. We've brought a lot of efficiencies there. And we're very, very comfortable with it as a hotel today. And we're really just trying to be thoughtful about whether we ought to um, put real money into it and bring its star rating status up. So today, maybe it's a three-and-a-half star or four-star hotel. Should we put money into it and, and, and raise it? it? Do we believe that its physical box is efficient enough to do that? Should we do a renovation on it? Should it be a teardown? And one of the nice things is, is that it services the underlying mortgage, and so we can really afford to be thoughtful about whether it ought to be a hotel, it ought to be in part condominium, total condominium, and I think we're being being we're we're being patient as 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 I think you should be today. Yeah, I think a good strategy. But you know, I wanted to ask because you know the the hotel and condo combination seems to kind of go back and forth in in vogue, out of vogue. What is your opinion on that? I mean, there have been and still continue and will continue to be uh, developments you know like this. But what is what is your opinion on? a combination of four or five-star hotel plus condo residences. Do you think those are as attractive to the consumer out there or as just a regular, say, a 157 uh, West 57th Street or a 15 CPW? Well, I think, I think that services and amenities that come with hotel are always attractive to an apartment house buyer because that's, that's the real key out there. Can you, can, you, can you be the one-stop solution for a buyer? Does he get right. the gym and the spa and the juice bar and everything that he wants in that one box? And so hotel, in large respect, gets you, in some respects, gets you that. I think what, what, what we don't like is the hybrid, which is the hotel condo. That, that's what we don't like, where it's a complete hotel, and yet you condo the hotel, and then you've got these sort of, restrictive short stays that you have to deal with. That, that's something we don't like. But what we do like is two separate buildings. In this case, at the Park Lane, it would be basically two separate tax lots, and you'd have hotel rooms, one tax lot, and you'd have condos, another, with condo owners being t- able to take advantage of hotel services. And, and, and that's a model that we do like. The big question is, does this particular hotel... I'm talking about the Park Lane, does it have the efficiency to be able to create that? And so from a physical standpoint, and so we're studying that. Gotcha. Steve, it's Jason. Condo construction financing in New York City has really hit hit a really tough spot during the Great Recession, and Mm -hmm. it's rebounded really only for top-tier developers like yourself. Can you elaborate a bit about your relationships with these these key lenders and and others who invest with you uh, going forward? Yeah, so, uh, yes, Jason, you're right. I mean, construction financing, I believe, is the toughest type of financing to find, which, you know, first of all, is is probably in some respects healthy for the market because it's a governor on how much much construction activity is going to be out there. Um, That said, for, you know, probably for reasons owing a lot more to, to luck, I mean, I, I, I think I have a real team here, and they're skilled people. But the fact is, in 30 years, we, we haven't really had any kind of any, any bad mistakes. I mean, we haven't given properties back, and so we've got these really we've got a really good track record and a good and good relationships. And I think that's what 
you know, that's what sells with construction lenders, like a Wells, an M&T, a PNC. What sells with them is, have you done what you said you're going to do, and have you paid your bills? Right. And, and I think that's a, that's a really big deal with these guys, because it's, it's a real execution business. It's a dot your I's and cross your T's and obsessively um, look over um, your project. And we've done that. And, uh, and, 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 and where we haven't done it, Jason, in the past, the mm-hmm. market has covered our mistakes, but we've learned from those mistakes. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, today, we're obsessive about site safety. I mean, we just, you know, we're making inspections all the time. And so I think that, that lenders see that and they, they uh, you know, and, and I've, got the, I've got the obligatory, like your dad, Jason, I've got the obligatory gray hair on my temples, you know, so I, I don't look, I don't have the baby face look I used to, and that sells too. So let's talk a little bit more about 150 Charles Street because that's an unbelievable project. You're doing very well there. And you purchased the building and to, you uh, – you know, you're, you're, you're doing very well. And I just want to know how deep is the market for these 3,000 plus per square foot condominiums in the city? There's a lot of projects going on. Land prices have hit nosebleed levels. You're, you know, one of the prevalent developers developing these projects. So on 150 Charles, how, how, who are the buyers? Are they all foreign buyers? I mean, what? Talk a little bit about that. Well, on 150 Charles, remember that they downzone that entire maybe 40 block swath of property on the in the West Village, right on uh, on the water. So, we really became in that one particular area. Now, south of Morton Street, there's 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 additional opportunity, but this location is a really featured location, and we became probably the last large scale project that could ever be built there. And so, we really had a competitive advantage. Uh, because nobody else could build. Yes, Rudin had the interior building, but the fact is that there wasn't anything else on the water ever to build again. And so that was that was really a big deal. That said, I actually believe that if you look at and 150 Charles, probably sold it on average for 3,500 a foot. So the lower portion of the building in the mid 2000s, but the upper portion of the building anywhere from six to eight thousand a foot, and. I actually think that the negotiations on the six to eight thousand dollar a square foot product was easier than the negotiations on the twenty five hundred dollar a square foot product, and why? Because for so many reasons, um, it is the uber wealthy with the assets, and 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 those assets inflated in price, whether it was art or stocks or real estate assets, with with. The last four years of cheap interest rates, there was enormous asset inflation, and so you saw you see a lot of people at the at the big upper end who mm-hmm. um, you know who have money to spend, at, and 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 I think that's 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 the market really that you have to target. The market that gets me a drop nervous is what I'm going to call the medium tier high end market. Steve, I got to stop you. I got to stop you there for a minute. We need to take a break, but we will come back, so don't go away. Okay. Uh, first, guys, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America channel. Don't go away. The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. Steve, uh, it's Jason again. Thanks for coming back. The, you just were you were just talking a little bit about 150 Charles Street and how well you're doing there. You know, we saw about a 12 percent increase across the U.S. in the residential housing market uh, in price on the average home, and interest rates are sort of beginning to rise. They're up from a year ago. Tell us a little bit about if you you know your concern. Do you have concerns or about the residential housing market? Uh, here and elsewhere, we want to hear a little bit about your your opinion on that. Yeah, you know, I I, I think about this all the time because I think Jason that we, you know, I'm a, we do we you know as you know we're in a lot of different businesses in the real estate space, and so I don't think that you can be in that business and not have an economic view, and so we're pretty thoughtful about our economic view, and it just occurs to me that for 24 months we've been talking about. What happens if we actually hand off to a real jobs recovery? And, and it's clear that there is certainly job creation, but I'm not really sure how deep it is. On the other hand, there's no inflation in the system. And so um, if you accept the fact, so if there's a jobs recovery, I think that's the home run. I mean, that's the grand slam out of the park. The question is, does fiscal policy match up with monetary policy and get you to that place? But mm-hmm. if it doesn't, and... You know, we just have good, solid incremental growth, then you're probably going to have a very accommodative Fed for the next bunch of years. So I'm not really sure where the storm winds are. I mean, maybe it is in a Chinese collapse, like some geopolitical event, but I don't know how you underwrite that. So I'm actually pretty bullish out there. My problem is that, but I think a lot of people are too, my problem is that from a construction standpoint, we're just not going to take, like, we'll take risk if we don't have to take construction risk, but we're not going to go pay some 
you know, a crazy amount of money for land because we've got a very, very healthy appreciation for just how much risk there is in the construction space. So, I mean, that may sound com- complicated as an answer, but does that does that make some sense? No, it makes sense. I, I guess it's, you know, New York City is one thing. I think a lot of people are talking about how these first-time home buyers, which are really the beginning of the uh, housing food chain, are really having trouble competing in the marketplace with foreign buyers from China and Russia and all cash buyers, which I guess New York City uh, was about 57% all cash uh, mm-hmm. and Miami was 67%. I mean, there was, a, there was a report yet last week saying that the country as a whole is nearly 43, 44% all cash buyers. So the first time home buyer, which really is the beginning of the housing food chain, if that doesn't, if that goes extinct to some degree because they can't compete with these other buyers, the question is, is, is that a, are we really on a house of cards? Is there an artificial propping up of the marketplace? And that, that was sort of where I was asking you. I mean, I understand right. what's going on in New York City, but I wanted to hear a little more about your opinion on that. Right. So, so, so data points, okay? So, for instance, you know, there's plenty of reports coming out of South Miami today that the Latin American traffic is backing up, that the deposits are not – but, I mean, not backing up in a way that it's going to cause – some crisis, but they're just, it's just not the velocity that it used to be. But that kind of makes sense because you had the whole model down there was sell 50% with 50% of, of your product with 50% down payments, take almost all of your risk off the table. And they were buying at somewhere between 350 and $500 a square foot. And that market has now moved from, from 350 to 500 to 600 to 900. Right. And so... You know, it, it may, and, and, and at the same time, many of these Latin buyers are from countries where you've had currency devaluation. So it's a double, it's a double tax on them. So, and, that, and, and on top of that, there are more stricter currency controls, particularly in Venezuela. So I think you probably go, well, we're always going to see some backup. On the other hand, I think you've got more Chinese buyers. You know, we just did, Jason... We did, uh, uh, we've done three EB-5s in China, right? and I personally went over there to make those presentations. And do you know that now the inquiries we're getting are, um, uh, when you, if we do an EB-5 on a condo project, can we get these people on a friends and family list? Can they get discounts to buy? So, you know, as interesting as the economic conditions are in China, people from there want to buy here. And right. so they gotta, they gotta and, get and why money is now. that? Pardon me? They have to get money out of their country. Well, I, you know, I, I, I view it a different way. I, I was in China, and so I saw it firsthand, and I traveled throughout the countryside making the, this pre, these presentations at, at different cities. And it's an, they're an amazing people, uh, really polite. You can't hardly hear a horn hunk. Um, I mean, it, it's just amazing. But enormous smog, pollution is in, incredible. Um, and so... You know, I just think that there are plenty of people over there who are saying to themselves, why do I not want to go at least have a, some sort of opportunity to be in the United States, duly, be able to go back and forth? That's a pretty interesting equation for many Chinese. You have a rule of law country here. I, you know, it's hard. I, I always believe that people don't have the sense of appreciation for the United States that they should. It's, it's an amazing country. As, 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 as difficult and as complicated as the last bunch of years have been. No question. 
Um, on the heels of uh, the conversation, this is Vince again, Steve, uh, with cash buyers. You know, there's been concern over mortgage rates uh, pushing prospective buyers to, you know, close bids, seal bids, bidding wars, etc. Do you think that uh, rising mortgage rates will likely damper, dampen, excuse me, the price growth in the, uh, 2014 this year? Well, I mean, I not mean, everybody Vince, is a cash buyer. Yeah, I mean, Vince, there's no doubt that uh, cheaper interest rates mean for cheaper, uh, make for cheaper uh, carrying charges. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the last time we had a spike in the 10-year, right about maybe it was a year or a year and a half ago, if you recall, there was a spike. There was a, lots of newspaper articles that talked about how housing had backed up. The fact is it picked up about 60 days later, and what happened? Everybody got used to it, and then they all looked back and they said, wow, rates are still pretty cheap. I, I, you know, I describe it as it's a little counter, it, it, you know, it feels counterintuitive, like rates go up, so automatically, you know, sales have to go down, unless, in fact, they were just so artificially cheap that another 25 or 50 basis points really ought not to mean all that much. And the fact is, they're really incredibly cheap. I mean, rates today are at historical lows. They're down near where my dad bought a home in 1963 or something when he bought a home in Baldwin Harbor and we moved out of the Bronx. It's, I mean, they're just enormously cheap. And I think when people look back in five, six, seven years, they're going to say, this was an incredible buying opportunity and mortgage financing opportunity. I believe it's something even beyond that, though, Vince. It's hard to get a mortgage out there today. Like, I've got a guy who works for me, runs my Miami office, uh, six-figure salary, doing great, um, second-time home buyer. He owned a house in Vegas. He was out there working for us. Doesn't have a long credit history, but never defaulted. And the fact of the matter is, it wasn't easy to get him a mortgage down there to buy this home. And I'm talking about, a, I want to say, a 65% mortgage, and he bought the home very, very well in Miami. So it's very, very difficult with these Dodd-Frank laws to, and that's something I always, I, I, I have my own problems with, but um, it's very difficult for the average person to, to, to get mortgage uh, uh, financing. I agree. Um, some may gripe about Bill de Blasio's proposed tax on the wealthy to fund universal pre-K. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was a big, I'm a big believer in universal pre-K. And I, I met the mayor and I told him so. And I was one of the few business people who came out to the mayor's um, uh, first, um, you know, when he announced it out at the school in Brooklyn. And I, and I believe in it fervently for all the right reasons. Um, you go up, I started my career, Vince, in Washington Heights in the Northwest Bronx, and the fact is there, there's some amazing people up there, working class, hardworking people, really, like, great people, like my parents were. And, you know, you get kids into school, you, you have better prospects. And so I personally never had a problem paying more tax. But I think I'm different than most. I really do. I mean, I'm not driven by taxes. I, but New York City has blessed me. New York State has blessed me in ways that I never believed were possible. And I, I, for me, it would be disloyal not to pay taxes. But you know what? There's a point. There's an inflection point. And the inflection point occurs when you just push people too far. And so I think they've reached the right compromise, the mayor and the governor. It was always my feeling that they would, by the way. Okay. No matter what positions each one took, 
it was my opinion that that's sort of what you have to do. It becomes a horse trading session. And they got to the right place. And so we're going to get pre-K, and the state's going to fund it. And, and they got to the right place. So I commend them both. Listen, I agree, and uh, well said. We'll be right back. We have to take one more break, come back for another segment. Thanks, uh, everybody. We'll be coming back in a minute. Uh, you're listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back, everybody. I want to say... Um Welcome once again to my co-host today, Jason Meister. Thanks for being here, Jason. Thanks for and having me. our special guest this morning, Steve Whitkoff, the CEO from the Whitkoff Group, a real estate investment firm, and we've been talking to him for a few minutes. We have a few more minutes left to go. Steve, thank you again so much for being with us. So, um, Vince, we, were just, we were just talking about the universal pre-K. Uh, in that same vein, uh, Steve... Uh, going on to de Blasio uh, releasing his housing affordable housing plan last week. I know you may not have had too much time to read it because it was only last week, but if you could give a little bit of your take on that housing plan and it, whether it, it, it uh, does anything for the, the, the terrible uh, shortage of affordable housing in New York City. Yeah, I actually, Jason, have read it and was at the initial meeting with the mayor's deputy mayor, um, Alicia Glenn, and I came away impressed. Um, I mean, she is one really bright lady, a, a former Goldman Sachs per, uh, um, person. And so, but, you know, they're going to do, um, Alicia Glenn, the mayor, Carl Weisbrod, who I have immense respect for. I mean, they're going to do, um, they're going to get to, they're going to solve, they're going to get to this, this, this affordable housing um, a conundrum by increasing density 
and adding to tax benefits. And that's really the only way to do it. The only competent people to build affordable housing out there are those who build. And the fact is there's a math equation, and you've got you've to push that math equation. And you push the math equation by giving density, by giving height, and by adding to tax benefits. And we need it, as you well have identified. The fact is that this city works better if we've got more affordable housing. So I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a really commendable um, approach. Okay. Um, Steve, where do you see your company in the next five years? I want to hear a little bit about that. Well, I think um, I, 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 we're trying to build, uh, my partner and I, a sustainable business. And so, and that means a business that endures, that's not just goes from transaction to transaction, and we rotate out of the market if we don't see building opportunity. So we're really trying to build a a sustainable business that we may well do some sort of debt platform, which we think is interesting, um, including in the construction financing space. So we're thinking about that because we think there's tremendous inefficiencies there. Um, and there's not a lot of people who understand, understand construction. So we're thinking about something like that. Um, but um, I think really, Jason, we're just trying to build a sustainable business that that we, we don't have to contract with our employees and then expand. And so hopefully we get to that place. We're working hard on it. Well, good luck with that, Steve. Um, Thank you. A little bit about what's next for Steve Wickoff non-business. What what's next for me? Yeah, in in terms of of the real estate business, outside of outside of work, some personal goals that you want to achieve or accomplish. Well, to be as philanthropic as I can possibly be, um, to change people's feelings about substance abuse and to uh, make a dent in that terrible problem. Um, I think that's really what I think about be the best father I could be, best friend. Um, you know, I, I mean, that's really how I think about my life these days. I really do. When you talk about philanthropic, what are some of the, if you don't mind um, us asking, what are some of the <clears throat> charities or organizations that you get involved in? I mean, I get involved in a lot, you know, but I'm setting up a foundation myself in memory of my son. I lost my oldest boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but I do a lot of stuff under the radar, you know, direct. Like I just read things in the newspaper and um, and, and and hear about people with a personal situation, and I'll go jump in my car and go see them and and see if I can help. And so I do a lot of that. Um, and I and I and and you know with zero fanfare. So I do a lot of that. I mean, I it's, I, I don't say no. To writing checks and taking tables or being involved in charities, but I, I really, I just find, and I think there's a that's big, right? Like that's a big deal, you know. Very these, big. these, but I, I'm not talking about from my standpoint. I'm talking about from the actual organizational standpoint. Like they're doing, they're doing a lot of things. They get, a, they get a bad rap a lot of times because people point to the administrative expense attached to fundraising. But I don't have a problem with it at all. I, I just feel Vince that. I really like the direct approach. And so sometimes I read in the paper about 
families that are having great difficulty and for whatever reason. And I, I just relate to it. I relate to people who have lost their children. And I understand. Because I have. And so, you know, and I think to myself, you know, I've been really fortunate. Like I, I get to go to a guy on a weekly basis who's been, um, you know, incredible in my life, uh, you know, with regard to grief control. And just I never thought I'd evolve to the place I have today, and I have. And so, but there's many out there who are less fortunate who haven't had that opportunity. And so, and I've talked to them, and, you know, they're, you know, you lose a child, and years later, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a daunting process to get past that. So I think about how I can directly help people. Um, and it used to be, you know, it's tough. Like, if you really want to help people, I mean, there's just so much sadness out there. It, it, can, it, can, it can seem. On the other hand, there's just so many ways that, you know, you make a dent, you just help one person, and I think it, you, you, you've done, you've, you've at least helped to do your part. So... That, that's how I think about it. It takes one. You're absolutely correct and uh, very admirable. Steve Whitkoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, great interview, nice, great insight, and we're going to be looking out for some of these uh, trophy buildings. Thank you, Steve, by the way, for coming in today. My, my pleasure, Vince and, and Jason. Thanks for having me. And, guys, we'll be right back with our star panel talking about hot topics, so don't go away. This is Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel for Voice America. Don't Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We're going to talk to my panel. We have today Justina Zika from Spire Residential, Niall Lundgren, Dalian Realty, and Parul Brumbat from Core Group Real Estate. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Vince. Thank you for joining us this morning. So I wanted to talk a little bit about neighborhoods. We, we touched on that um, last week when we were chatting a little bit, and I had said something about, you know, the second question people ask us after the first question, what do we do, is where do you live or where do you come from? What, I mean, listen, I don't want you to give your home addresses away, but just tell us where you guys live and why you've chosen those neighborhoods. Niall. Um, so I live downtown. I live in a little nook between Little Italy and Soho on a street called Baxter Street. 
Um, I actually lived there for a couple of reasons, but one is due to location because it's really close to the subway. So um, I'm all about just easy access to different parts of um, Manhattan. That's very important to me. And then I, I also love the neighborhood because I also have easy access to a bunch of different neighborhoods, like relatively within walking distance. I can go to Soho for shopping, Little Italy, um, Nolita for all the boutiques that are around there. Chinatown, even close to the Bowery. So um, for all of those reasons, that's, that's kind of where, where I live. And, and I actually love, I love the area. Um, Justina. So I actually live in Astoria in Queens. Um, and I moved into the area maybe three years ago after I had come back from working abroad in Australia. Um, and I just, you know, a lot of my friends were already living in the area, so I thought, you know, why not move there? It was already a great sense of community. Um, and within the past three years, I've kind of moved three times um, within the neighborhood. I quite like it. It's really diverse. It's um, amazing food. Um, like Nal was saying, there's a great community city, um, so that's really important, especially when, when you're working in real estate and need to be pretty accessible. So I have about a 10 to 15-minute commute into Manhattan, um, which is which is really easy. Um and I actually, I love living here. It's a, it's a quickly changing neighborhood um, as a lot of the people are being pushed out of, of Manhattan um, to find cheaper prices. Uh, a lot of them are going to, coming into Long Island City and, and Astoria. Um, and they're actually breaking ground on a new development here, um, a $2,400 or 2400 unit development on the water. So the area is going to change even more in the next year or so. Um, so I like, to, I like to stay on top of that and see what's going on. Parul. Well, I live on the west side of Union Square, um, and, you know, to sort of echo what both Justina and, and Niles are saying, I think being a real estate broker, it is extremely important for us to be close to transportation. Um, I'm fortunate enough to sort of live within two blocks of literally every single subway stop and right on top of, um, of one of them. So it really just sort of makes getting around really easy. Um, also, uh, for me, the walking distance thing is really key because I really do feel like I clear my head a lot when I'm just sort of strolling through the city and, and just, I don't know, just looking at the shops or looking at the architecture. A lot of times during our busy days when we're running from one place to the other, that's sort of my zen space. And uh, what I really enjoy doing is just being able to walk from, from where I live, which is, you know, west of Union Square. I can walk to Soho, West Village, East Village. Um, even to the like a nomad like uh, north of Madison Square Park area, et cetera. So it just ex is extremely convenient, and it is sort of close to just about everything that I enjoy doing. Okay, so I live on the Upper West Side, and I've been up there for about ten years. And you know, the reason I ask the question is because when you start working with a new buyer, and we all do this, um, you know, hopefully on a regular basis. You know, they talk about neighborhoods and they want to be in certain neighborhoods and sometimes the neighborhood will work for them, sometimes not, depending on what you all just said, ease of transportation, you know, stuff that you like to do in your personal time. So I like to say to myself and also to my client base that, all right, I live here, but I also know a lot about all these other neighborhoods. I also understand the city as a whole. And to compare and contrast, I think it makes sense. Um I do sometimes, and one famous story, you know, somebody wanted to live in the West Village, and we looked around for about a year, and then all of a sudden she ended up on the Upper West Side, happy as can be, still there about eight years later. So neighborhoods are important for a lot of reasons, but um, I think it's important for us as brokers and agents to make sure that we 
really understand when someone talks about, I need to live here, I want to live here, what that's all about, uh, and we go forward uh, as far as that's concerned. I wanted to ask about open house today, open house etiquette. And someone, you know, recently was discussing this with me, and then I recently saw an article in the New York Times. When you have an open house, okay, is it customary for people who come and go throughout that hour, hour and a half, two hours, to use the bathroom, to sit on the furniture, to kind of mill about as though this is their apartment. Is that something that's that's just understood or is it something that's a little inconvenient? And how do we as agents handle that? And more importantly, how do our sellers handle that? I'm beginning to get more and more complaints about etiquette at open house. And it's a very important topic. What are your thoughts on that? It is quite uh, amazing um, sort of, you know, I, I think it's people's personal space. Um, the seller has emotional attachment to the home that they may have lived in for two years or ten years or sometimes even twenty years. And um, and first of all, it, I think that sellers are going through something that um, is nerve wracking for them in the first place that they're making such a big change in their life. Um, so when you know this is their home that they're selling and the emotional attachment component of it um, comes into play, I think. Um, even in a bigger sense than just simple etiquette. Um, I, uh, I, would, I would really say that um, what I find is, is they tend to want to feel that their space has been respected and that, that their home is something that's going to be looked at on, with, with respect and value um, and, and not just something that's going to get traced through during an open house. Yeah, and I would, I would just to jump off the back, and I think it's it's kind of funny. You know, I actually, whenever I work with a buyer, speaking on the buyer side, whenever I work with a buyer, you know, you got to let them know that we're walking into someone's, you know, private space, right? But I, I've had a couple instances where I've had funny buyers working with them. They feel in order to get the, the best understanding um, of, uh, of a property is by sitting on the couch and actually imagining that it's theirs. Um, sometimes Correct. I actually find myself sitting on that on the couch with, with them. Um, it, it's a little little odd sometimes for the listing broker. I'm like, you know, this is kind of, you know, what this buyer really needs to envision themselves living there. Um, and it actually helps out um, with the buyers that I've worked with who do that. They're like, okay, I like the vibe here, or they don't like it. Let's keep it moving. On the seller side, you know, conversely, you know, I think, you know, that somebody could get really turned off by if they knew, you know, all that was going on. And I read that New York Times article, Vince, that you mentioned, and, you know, people, you know, go using the bathroom or something like that. That could be a big turnoff for sellers. Um, and, you know, what I've seen a lot is, is you know, the booty idea where, you know, you got to put booties on in order to enter and respect the space so you're not scuffing up the floors um, things of that nature. So, you know, on, on both ends, you, could, you can kind of see how, how it works for both the buyers and the sellers, but it's, it's, it's something certainly to, uh, to take into consideration. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, I wonder, is it okay to lay down the law? You know, when people come in and say, I want to do this, or can I do this, or, um, you know, can I use the bathroom? That's the biggest one. And is it okay to say no? I, mean, I think so when I work with... Uh, Go ahead, Justine. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so whenever I'm working with buyers and there's an open house, I'll always email um, the listing agent to, to register my clients. I think that's pretty pretty standard um, in the city. And oftentimes I'll get a list of, of things that the, that the seller and the listing agent, you know, want to, want to communicate. So expect to not have your shoes on in the apartment. Um, please don't bring pets. That, I guess that there's been some, some bad experiences with that. 
So I think as long as it's communicated beforehand, and then when we've gone to the open house, you know, there, I, I've seen signs before, before, please take your shoes off um, and whatnot. So um, as long as it's communicated, I really think it's fine. And, and uh, like Parole was saying, you, this is someone's personal space, and you really have to, you have to respect that. And also, I think Nyla sort of really hit it home with sort of bringing up the fact that um, it really is important for us to also give the buyers an actual experience and and kind of help them imagine their life in that space. It really is about creating the balance between the respect that the sellers deserve um, and um, making sure that the buyers don't feel like they're, they're in someone else's space. And so the key is really just kind of being able to balance out those two ends that, you know, that, that are kind of contrasted. Um, and I think that the, one of the best ways of doing that is sort of one of the things I tend to bring up with buyers is I say, you know, this, you know, I, this, this furniture may not be exactly how you may decorate the place. Where would you put your couch? Can you imagine your furniture in here? What would your life look like in here? And I think that sort of personalizing the experience for them that way at the same time creating respect, you know, making sure that they take their shoes off or, or like Justina said, you know, making sure that we, we pre-qualify people and make sure that they really are serious about, about buying and aren't going to bring their dog with them while they're on a Sunday afternoon stroll is also really important. Continuing on the open house, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, topic, and this has always been something that I've kind of debated back and forth. Are open houses valuable? Do they make sense? Should we get rid of them? Should we continue them? I go back and forth, as I said, on that for many reasons. And we'll talk about that, you know, as we go through the series. But my question on Open House today is, you know, based on this this uh, very intense, very hot market, what are what are you guys seeing out there as far as volume? Are they heavily attended uh, each Sunday morning, afternoon these days? I think they are. You know, I ha- I've had uh, a couple listings personally that have seen significant traffic um, and it, it literally, it creates a lot of demand and it, and it pumps buying temperatures. So, you know, it works to the advantage of the seller because there's so many buyers in there and they're looking directly at their competition. Um, so those, those people um, are saying, all right, well, you know, I know that there was 50 people at that open house or they, they're using the sign-in sheet and they're looking at it. And it's not like there's two names. There's, you know, the whole, it's the third page that they're on and they're f- filling their name out. So they recognize that they need to be strong and aggressive with their offers coming you know, close to at ask or even above ask on um, on initial offers, and then um, and, and yeah. So to go off what Nal was saying, I think buyers now are are more educated in this process than they've ever been. Um, so my experience has been that the well priced units get tons of traffic, but then there are other ones that just have not been priced well, have not been presented well in both the listing um, and online, and those I, you know you get five, six people at an open house on a Sunday. Um, there's not that much there. So it really depends on the specific unit and um, and the seller or listing agent's marketing um, of that unit. Um, so based on heavy volume, based on lots of traffic coming through, do you see, or has there been any percentages in your individual businesses, percentages of looky-loos versus real serious buyers versus people just starting the marketplace? Because, again, I, I see we run the gamut sometimes, even in these hot markets of people just entering, which is a good thing. They're getting an education on what's out there and what's available. To people living in the building wanted to check out the furniture layout. To people who, well, I've been in the market for a while. I don't know. And then the real serious ones that say, okay, this is my price point. This is the my floor plan. This is what I want. Let's make it happen. Are you seeing all of the above? 
I think it depends um, on, on the listing. But, you know, I mean, in general, you, you always have, you know, people who live in the building that want to come see it. They're always knocking, you know, knocking down. I just had a co-op listing recently, and I had a board member come down and say, hey, I'm a member of the board. It was actually great for me because I was able to get a lot of insight, you know, into, into you know, how the board operates and what they're really looking for in terms of the buyer profile. So it really depends on, on the building, but I think you're always going to get those uh, a, a mix. I mean, I think now, considering the market um, and how tight everything is, the, the folks that are out are serious and they're, and they're looking looking to buy, but you're always going to have a, a percentage that are, you know, in the building or just, you know, looking around in the neighborhood just for fun. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, most of the time I think that they're very important and there's a lot of opportunity to get the right people in there so obviously we can uh, make sales. Um, but I always like to look at it to see, you know, I'm trying to measuring what, what makes the most sense when we advertise our open houses and are we in the right price point? Are we in the right, you know, mindset to get these places done? Let's move to the rental market. So somebody says they want to move back into the city. They want to rent uh, one bedroom on the Upper West Side. In terms of getting the, the best price, when is the best time to start looking? So say, for example, you got this call today. Should they wait until, uh, you know, the spring season is over, maybe to avoid some seasonal hikes in rental prices? Or do they just get out there, you know, feet on the street today with one of you and get the search done and over? I think it really depends on the specifics of what they're looking for. So, I mean, I think the best time to really look is is December, January, and February. That's when most of these, um, the rental buildings will be offering concessions, whether it's one month free um, and covering the broker fee. So you can not only find a really good price um, on units, but you can also, you know, save a lot of money in terms of your broker fee as long as well as overall um, rent. Um, but at the same time, that's a really slow season, so tons of people aren't moving, um, and there's not that much inventory to choose from. So if somebody specific needs outdoor space or a new look and feel um, of a building, then they should really wait till the summer when you have the most lease end dates and um, and if you can, can stomach the prices, um, which often are, you know, 20% higher than they were in the winter time, um, then the summer and the, the spring and summer up to kind of the end of September um, is when you'll find the most inventory on the market because everybody's moving. I also think that, I, real quick, I, I just also think that it's not necessarily always just what they're looking for. I think a lot of play, what plays into it. Um, is what their current situation is, what their current lease situation is. Are they on month-to-month? Do they have to be out by the end of the month or, you know, in 30 days or what, what have you? I think that's really important in identifying, you know, their urgency. If they're month-to-month or they're a little bit flexible, then they can kind of shop around and see what works as opposed to somebody who has to be out in you know, three weeks. You know, they're kind of pigeonholed by the market, and there's not that many incentives, you know, right now. And then as a result of that, they're going to have to be comfortable with, with paying brokerage commissions or not getting as many incentives, for example. The debate over brokerage commissions on the rental side, obviously the renter pays the commission uh, unless you're working in a building that is paying the broker commission. Are you guys seeing the typical um, debate or struggle with people not wanting to pay broker commissions for rental apartments? I feel like with the market being as tight as it is in most neighborhoods, um, it is sincerely at times really tough to even get your bid in and just land the apartment that you want. So it seems that the negotiability on the renter's part at this moment in in time um, isn't that they just unfortunately don't have that much of an option um, to fight over the the broker fee in my experience. 
Um, however, like Justina said, you know, if it's during an off-market time, uh, you know, it, it, it could be a little, it, that there's more of a possibility that even a private owner investor who is renting out their condo or, or whatnot um, may, you know, pitch in a bit towards the broker fee or even decide to pay it depending on the neighborhood and time of year. Do you see that that, that debate, I call it debate for lack of a better word, do you see that that debate um, happens more in certain price points on the rentals, higher end, lower end, in between end, or just sort of across the board, or just individually based, in your experience, guys? I feel like I everyone it... um, tries to negotiate a good deal, um, and, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, so brokerage fees are, are generally a little bit negotiable here and there, um, depending on the flexibility of, of the tenant's agent as well as the, the landlord's agent. Um, everyone's trying to get to get a deal at the end of the day, though, so they will negotiate that. Um, but like Parole was saying, I think a lot of people, um, considering the, how tight the inventory is, are, are getting you know their minds around the fact that they will have to pay a broker fee to, to find the best apartment for them. Yeah, I, I find that too, but I also find on the very high end, you know, they almost expect that this is what it is, regardless of, of the commission structure, one month, et cetera. Uh, they just expect it, and they're pretty okay with it. But I find, in my at least in my business, you know, on the on the lower end or the middle uh, middle tier, and uh, there's always someone, Justine, as you said, that you know wants to uh, negotiate a little bit. All right, I'm being told that we have just a few seconds left to go. I wanted to thank you guys once again. I will see you again next week. Uh, on next week's show, we're going to be talking everything Los Angeles. We have um, two uh, brokers from LA coming on. Uh, who have a great handle on the L.A. marketplace and the pricing and the strategies and how it differs. We have Josh Altman from Million Dollar Listing L.A. He will join me also as special guest. So that's all for next week. Thank you for joining me once again. I'll be back next week, 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, live on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. You can always catch the show later in the day or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. Remember, You can tweet me at Vince Rocco or find me on Facebook. Have a great day, everybody. Have a great week, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. 